So I have a brother named Jeff. And after all these years, believe it or not, I can count on one hand the number of major fights and arguments that we have had. We get along very well, but there have been those instances, though few, where that has not been the case. And one of those instances was when we were teenagers. The details are a bit fuzzy now to me, but I am certain, absolutely certain, that Jeff started it. <laughs> At least that's how I remember it. It was after school, and we were in the living room, and Jeff directed some sort of offhand comment at me, a verbal jab, if you will, a small one. And of course, I had to return the favor, and I said something very, very small in return. I'm sure much smaller than the <laughs> And then, of course, not wanting to get the last word, Jeff followed back with another, a little bit more forceful. So again, I retaliated. And after several verbal rounds, the emotional heat intensified. I decided to up the ante. Enough of this verbal stuff. Let's get physical. <laughs> so I pushed Jeff. He pushed back. I pushed back harder. And before you knew it, what started off as a mild argument now escalated into an all-out war. We were punching each other, kicking each other with no end in sight. And then, anger stage left, my mom. <laughs> My mother was in the kitchen, she decided it was time to intervene so her two kids don't destroy the living room and each other. But how can one mom stop two large teenage boys from destroying the living room and each other? And you know, there's these moments where people get like an adrenaline rush and they can do these superhuman things. Well, my mom got one of those adrenaline rushes, and so she rushed in, then she ran to the middle of the fight, and she grabbed me by my hair, and she grabbed my brother by the back of his hair, and I, I swear, she lifted <laughs> And she pulled us apart, and she just screamed, enough, and sure enough, we stopped. I think she had us at the hair. <laughs> and I really can't remember another argument or fight that I've had with my brother since then. <laughs> and you know this, there are certain personalities that tend to get into arguments and fights, certain personalities that want to get the last word, that want to prove to the other that I'm right and you are just so, so wrong. I mean, you know which personalities I'm talking about, right? They're called human being personalities. Right? You're a human being, I'm a human being. This happens to all of us. Even if we tend to be a conflict avoider, we all get pulled into an argument or we all initiate them. And then once they start, it is hard to stop them. It's hard to get out of them because both parties typically pile on the emotional fuel onto the fire. You can call this the law of escalation. Two people argue, and the default is escalation, not peace and reconciliation. And the Bible is no strangers, no stranger to fights and arguments. You're gonna look at John 8 in a moment, but when you think about it, the first man, the first woman. They, they argued with the serpent before the fall. Jacob's sons constantly argued with each other, and especially with Joseph, and then they end the argument by selling him into slavery. Moses and Pharaoh argue, and it escalates to the point where they go through ten plagues together. The prophet Malachi, which is the last book of the Old Testament, you'll hear God's people, they're brash enough to argue with God. And then I just a little snap some snapshots. God says, I love you. And the people say, I love you, love things. 
God says, you haven't revered my name. The people say, how have we not revered your name? And God says, you've robbed me. And the people say, how have we robbed you? And there's like seven interactions like that. And on and on it revolves. And think about this. The final book of the Old Testament, Malachi, it ends with people arguing with God. And if that doesn't clue us in on how much we need God's grace, how much we need a Savior, then I don't know what will. But if I had to choose one of the most heated, intense arguments of all the Bible, I would pick John 8. John 8 records an argument between Jesus and a group of religious leaders, and it's through the course of this argument that Jesus declares another remarkable I am statement. We've been looking at those this semester. And actually, it is Jesus' I am statement that brings this whole argument to a crashing halt. So tonight, what I want to do is I want to first I want us to step into John 8 and step into this argument and listen in on it. And then second, I want to take Jesus' I am statement that emerges at the end, and I want to connect it to our hearts and to our, our, our heads. So, listening in on the argument. Actually, this is, yeah, that's a little premature, but that's okay. Before this, this is the beginning of the argument. Before this, the story begins with the religious leaders sending the temple guards to go arrest Jesus. So the temple guards, they go. Jesus is speaking, he's talking, he's teaching. And the temple guards... They're amazed, and so they don't arrest him. But the temple guards, they go back to the religious leaders, and they report. Finally, and this is John 7, 45. Finally, the temple guards went back to the religious leaders who asked them, why didn't you bring Jesus in? And the guards declared, no one ever spoke the way this man does. And the religious leaders replied, you mean he also deceived you? So the temple guards, they don't arrest Jesus, but eventually, surprise, surprise, Jesus goes on his own initiative to the very people that wanted him arrested. He goes to them. And John 8 records this lengthy interaction between Jesus and the people who were trying to have him arrested. So I'm not going to read the whole conversation, but I'll just pick out some highlights. So here we go. Yeah, go ahead, Robbie. So Jesus, he says to these religious leaders, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And the leader said, Here you are, appearing as your own witness. Your testimony is not valid. I mean, it's just Old Testament law said, if you're going to testify or make a claim about something, you need two witnesses. I mean, for obvious reasons. If I said, Oh, hey, Megan, she, she stole $1,000 from me. Let's make her pay. Well, if I'm the only witness... Well, you know, you kind of, kind of follow that. You need two witnesses to sort of corroborate a story. Plus, like, I mean, you all would say, there's no way, man. <laughs> but Jesus replies to their argument. He says, if you go to the next slide, Robbie, even if I testify on my own behalf, my testimony is valid. Jesus is saying, I don't need one witness myself. In your own law, it is written that the testimony of two witnesses is true. So, okay, I am one who testifies for myself, and my other witness is the Father who sent me. And then the leaders respond with, where is your Father? And then, go ahead, Robbie. Jesus says, you do not know me or my Father. If you knew me, you would know my Father also. You are from below, I am from above. And then the leaders say, who are you? And I wish the Bible would come at these points with like an inflection guide, 
Mm-hmm. You know, what is the tone behind that question? My guess is that it's not, it's not like, who are you? It's more like, who do you think you are? And Jesus says, and go to the next slide, just what I've been telling you from the beginning. If you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. And then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. And then the leaders say, we are Abraham's descendants and have never been slaves of anyone, picking up on the slavery idea. How can you say that we shall be set free? Now, the leaders appeal to their lineage. We're Abraham's descendants, Abraham, their ancestor from many, many hundreds of years ago. And the last time they checked, they were not slaves. And Jesus says, next slide, yep, very truly, I tell you, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. If the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. You actually just sent that. I am telling you what I have seen in the Father's presence, and you are doing what you have heard from your Father. And the leaders say, Abraham is our Father. And Jesus says, well, if you were Abraham's children, then you would do what Abraham did. But no, you are doing the works of your own Father. And the leaders say, because they're, they're confused, because they believe that being themselves to be Abraham certain, they say, we are not illegitimate children. The only father we have is God himself. And the implication here, you know, the Christmas story is, Jesus, you're the illegitimate child. We know your father, Joseph, and how, you know, he should have divorced your mother, Mary, because she had you, she was pregnant with you before you were, they were married. So, you probably don't even know who your father is. So don't you lecture us on who our father is. And Jesus says, If God were your father, you would love me, for I have come here from God. You belong to your father, the devil. And you want to carry out your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him. Now, just a little side note to self and to each of you. If you really want to escalate an argument, <laughs> you can just call somebody like the offspring of the devil, and I think that will do. I imagine at this point voices start to raise. The leaders say, aren't we right in saying that you, not us, but you, you're a Samaritan, so you're, you're just sort of a half-Jewish, you're, in, you're an inferior Jewish person, not like us. You're a Samaritan, and you're demon-possessed. You're the one serving the devil, not us. And Jesus says, I am not possessed by a demon, but I honor my Father, and you dishonor me. Very truly, I tell you, whoever obeys my word will never see death. Again, Jesus kind of changed the topic. And they say, now we know that you are demon-possessed. Abraham died, and so did the prophets. Yet you say that whoever obeys your word will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham? He died, so did the prophets. So who do you think you are? And Jesus says, and this is getting close to the end, if I glorify myself, my glory means nothing. My father, whom you claim is your God, is the one who glorifies me. Though you do not know him, I know him. If I said I did not know him, then I would be a liar like you. But I do know him, and I obey his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced at the thought of seeing my day, and he saw it and was glad. Leaders, you are not yet 50 years old. And this is the time when priests would retire. You're not 50 years old yet, Jesus. And you have seen Abraham? And Jesus says, and here it is, 
Very truly I tell you, before Abraham was born, I am. And when Jesus says this, the religious leaders have nothing else to say. But they're not finished. They move from the verbal to the physical, just like I did with my brother. They take action, they try to do something. At this point, and this is the text, yeah, thank you, Robbie. At this, at this declaration of Jesus, they pick up stones to stone him, but Jesus hid himself, slipping away from the temple grounds. So why do the religious leaders seek to end Jesus' life right then and there? And thankfully, we don't have to wonder and guess at this, what Jesus meant by this, and why the religious leaders did this, because later on in John 10, there's two chapters later, there's another showdown between Jesus and the religious leaders. It's very similar, and again, it ends with the leaders having stones in their hands. And Jesus says, I have shown you many great miracles from the Father. For which of these do you stone me? And they replied, we're not stoning you for any of those, none of those miracles, but we are stoning you for blasphemy, because you, a mere man, claim to be God. So when Jesus says, before Abraham was born, I am, actually, Robbie, go to the next slide. Jesus is declaring himself to be the eternal God wrapped in human flesh. And, and this would be like me saying, before George Washington, I am. You know, before he was born, I am. And so many of you know John Music. Heroes on my friend. And I know if he were here tonight and I said something like that, he would say to me, Chris, you know, it's like you fell out of the stupid tree and on the way down you hit every single branch. <laughs> you know, nobody can make that claim without a smile on their face as a joke. And you know, up here on the on the on the screen, you see, remember Exodus 3, the religious leaders, they got this. They knew exactly what Jesus was doing. Remember Exodus 3, where Moses, he's out in the wilderness. He's 80 years old, he's tending sheep, and, and he sees a bush on fire, and so he goes over to see this bush. And, and we learn that this burning bush is actually God appearing to Moses to talk to him. And in that moment, God tells Moses through the bush, I'm sending you back to Egypt to rescue my people from slavery, and so go. It's interesting, there's a lot about slavery in John 8, too. And Moses, he quibbles and he argues. This is actually another moment in the Bible where there's somebody arguing with God. Moses argues with God. And he says to, to God, if I go tell them the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they say, well, what is his name? Then what should I tell them, Moses asks. And do you remember what God said? He said, tell them my name is I am who I am. Tell them the I am has sent me to you. And that is the unique covenantal name of God. The I Am, or Yahweh, as it's sometimes referred to. When you see the capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, capital Lord in your Bibles, that name Lord is a derivative of the verb to be, I am who I am, um, and, and this covenantal name of God. So when Jesus says, before Abraham was, pause, I am he is taking the unique covenantal name of God for himself. Jesus, basically, Jesus is telling the religious leaders, okay, do you remember Moses in the burning bush? Do you remember that? Well, that was me. And within the religious framework, their theology, like, no 
man can say this with a straight face and should live. It's blasphemy, so that's why they pick up stones. And that's what Jesus did. And this story, just like we heard it read, it doesn't end as you might expect. It ends with Jesus hiding himself. I mean, I hope you caught that. Jesus hides. He slips away from the religious leaders. If I was Jesus, if I was the eternal God wrapped in flesh, when I saw them picking up stones, I would take action. That's when I would make an earthquake happen and blind them. And actually, <laughs> that's actually what Jesus did to the Apostle Paul a little later. But instead, here, Jesus, he quietly slips away. He escapes a public execution. At least on this day, he does. Because soon he will embrace a public execution, but it will be according to his Father's timing and according to his Father's purposes, dying on a cross in Jerusalem for the sins of the world. And Jesus will not hide or slip away or back down from that when that time comes. So that's the argument. We've walked into the argument, and hopefully now you have a better sense of what's going on there. Which now brings us to the second point, which is I want to connect this truth to, to our heads and to our hearts. So first, our heads. For 2,000 years, there have been debates about who Jesus is. About who he says he was, about who, and, and who he actually was, the historical Jesus. And I want you to hear how one modern scholar, this is now just focusing on our heads, how one modern scholar argues that the doctrine of Jesus as the eternal God, you know, which is what just comes out in, 8, in John 8, 58, before Abraham was, I am, Jesus as the eternal God, is something that must have been made up much, much later. After the time of Jesus. After the time of the early church and the disciples. An invention of later generations. And his name is Bart Ehrman. He's a religion professor at UNC Chapel Hill. And he wrote the book, How Jesus Became God, The Exaltation of a Jewish Preacher from Galilee. You can even hear in the title, like he's sort of laying out his cards. He believes that much later Jesus became God. And so here, I'm going to, Rob, you can go to the next slide. I'll read from, this is an excerpt. You do find Jesus calling himself God in the Gospel of John, or the last Gospel. Jesus says things like, before Abraham was, I am. This ties in perfectly to time. And I and the Father are one. This is actually, that was last week, or two weeks ago. And if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. These are all statements you find only in the Gospel of John, and that's striking, because we have earlier Gospels, and we have the writings of Paul, and in none of them is there any indication that Jesus said such things. And he goes on, I think it's completely implausible that Matthew, Mark, and Luke would not mention that Jesus called himself God if that's what he was declaring about himself. That would be a rather important point to make. This is not an unusual view among scholars. It's simply the view that the Gospel of John is providing a theological understanding of Jesus that is not what was historically accurate. <clears throat> So that last bit, Armand says that John's understanding of Jesus as the eternal God, the great I am, it is not historically accurate. But Jesus didn't have that understanding of himself. Armand says that John's portrayal of Jesus is wrong because the other Gospels of, and the writings of Paul, it doesn't give any indication that Jesus said or claimed such things. And here's 
where we must respectfully but strongly disagree with Thermon. There's plenty of evidence in all of the New Testament writings that Jesus himself and that the earliest followers of Jesus believed that he was both man and eternal God. So, for example, I'm just going to run through a handful quickly. At the end of the Gospel of Matthew and Luke, people worship the resurrected Jesus, and he does not stop them. All Jews forbid the worship of anything but God alone. That was, one, that was the first commandment of the great Ten Commandments. In Mark's Gospel, Jesus publicly forgives another man's sins, and the religious leader rightfully squawk and say, nobody can do that but God alone. And then not too long after that, Jesus says, I'm Lord over the Sabbath. And, and it's after those incidents that the religious leaders get together and plot to take his life, because they believe he's uttering blasphemy. He's taking on the name of God. In his letter to the Colossian church, the Apostle Paul writes, Jesus is the visible image of the invisible God, 115, and that in Jesus Christ all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form, 29. The author of Hebrews says that Jesus is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of God's being, 1 3, and that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He's eternal, 13 8. The Apostle Peter writes in his letter, To those who through the righteousness of our God and our Savior Jesus Christ have received the faith as precious as ours. He calls Jesus both God and Savior. Jude writes that he wants to remind his people that Jesus delivered his people out of Egypt. So the God behind the Exodus, Jude says, is Jesus. So the understanding that Jesus is the great I Am is all throughout the New Testament, not just John, as Erlon asserts. Matthew, Mark, Luke, Paul's letters, the author of Hebrews, Peter, Jude, they all testify to that truth. So we say the historically accurate Jesus is a Jesus who claimed to be the eternal God. This is what Jesus' first followers believed, and they emphasize these things in their writings. And part of the problem is that if you take that away, is if Jesus as the eternal God is, is it's a much later invention of the early of the church, then how do you explain his crucifixion? It's really hard to put the pieces together. If Jesus was somebody who went around and taught things like love God, love your neighbor, and he healed others. Why would the religious elite get so upset about that that they would want to nail him to a cross? But if he went around saying things like, before Abraham was, I am, or forgiving people of their sins, or receiving worship, that would disturb the religious leaders and move them to put him on trial and to execute him. The religious leaders knew exactly what Jesus was saying, exactly what he was claiming throughout his earthly ministry. And so why do we, here in the 21st century, why do we think we can figure out who Jesus was? <coughs> figure out who he claimed to be better than they could. And, and here's why this matters. If Jesus wasn't really God in the flesh, then why should we bother to listen to him? If he is God in the flesh, then that's a game changer. He's not just a person we turn to for advice, for inspiration, for life direction. Rather, he is the eternal God to whom we must all give an account. And perhaps it's that possibility, that's what's driving people to dismiss 
these types of claims from Jesus because it's uncomfortable. But he can also be a refuge and a rock to hide ourselves in because he's the eternal God. He has life itself in him. So that's connecting it to our head. And now I want to connect this to our hearts. To take this truth before Abraham was, I am, and to connect it and apply it to our hearts. Yeah, thank you, God. Since Jesus is the great I am, since he is the eternal God, then he doesn't change. And his character never changes either. Jesus is perfectly consistent at all times and with all people. And this is so different than us. We who are so fickle, so dependent on other things outside of ourselves. For example, if I'm really hungry or sleep deprived or in the middle of a trial or a heavy workload or somebody said, just said a harsh, critical word to me, you know, then the question is to say, well, what Chris are you going to get? Are you going to get the patient Chris, the exasperated Chris, the weary Chris? How I behave is constantly changing depending on my circumstances. And yes, hopefully we can grow in certain character qualities over time that we become more honest and truthful, more merciful, more just, less anxious, less cynical, less prejudiced. But Jesus, his character never changes. As eternal God, he doesn't need to grow in mercy like you and I do. He doesn't need to say, you know, he doesn't say, I forgive you one moment, and then the next moment he said, I just have to say, I've had enough. He doesn't discipline for us for our good for in one moment, and then discipline us out of exasperation in the next. Unlike us, Jesus is unchangeable. He is consistent. He is faithful. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And because Jesus' character never changes, we can approach him and know him with great confidence. And, since Jesus is the eternal God, his truth never changes either. I mean, have you ever read some of your old papers, or like a journal entry, and you read it and you're like, oh my goodness, <laughs> what was I thinking? That is so wrong. <laughs> No, I wish I could go and change that. I am glad I've grown up since then. We are constantly growing in knowledge and in, in, in speaking of what is and what isn't true. Right? Like, at one point, the world is flat. Well, whoops. <laughs> I remember having an argument with Lydia when she was two years old. There was a spider on the ground, and, and she pointed at it, and she said, ant. And I said, no, Lydia, that's a spider. She said, no, ant. I said, no, Lydia, that's a spider. I dug into my spider. And eventually, I just let her get the last word. And it was an untrue word, but I could see there was just no change in her mind. Right? But we, we, all of us, we've done that. We've, we've spoken things, not just when we're little, but we've spoken things and we'll continue to do this that end up not being true. But everything that Jesus says is true, and what he says stands forever. It was, it is, and it will always be perfect. 
Jesus, he's not going to come back and say, oh, you know what, listen up, everyone. New revelation coming. Last time I came, I've I, I got a few things off, you know, so we're going to tweak a few things here and then we're going to say a few different things and do a few different things. No? Let's try this again. Everybody changes their minds constantly. Philosophers, politicians, scientists, parents, dietitians. I mean, what you're supposed to eat one year, like the next year is like unhealthy, and then what was unhealthy becomes healthy. Everybody changes their minds. And we listen and we trust imperfect people who change their minds, and we hope that they're being wise and truthful. So yeah, sometimes they get it wrong, but we trust them nonetheless. But you go through John 8 and listen to how much Jesus repeats. I tell you the truth. My testimony is true. Truly, truly, I say to you. And it's striking how much Jesus says this. And he's saying this because he knows he is the eternal God. And the things he speaks are true and right and solid and perfect. And will never need to be changed. And because Jesus' truth never changes, now our faith rests on a secure and certain foundation, the truthfulness of Jesus himself. So if you're here, and you're trying to figure out who Jesus is, well, I mean, it's not you personally. Before Abraham was, I am. It's a great word for him. He is the eternal God. He is Savior and Lord of the world. You keep seeking him in all of his fullness. When you read through the account, actually, some of the people who are listening to this argument, they actually put their faith in him in the midst of that argument as they were listening to him. So my challenge to you is listen to the words of Christ. Hear them, consider them, read them, and know them. Don't be so busy that you don't listen to him. Some others of you, you know him. You're following him. Some of you, even, you're going to go and be a part of questions for quesadillas later tonight or this weekend. And students are going to ask questions about life, God, Jesus. And I know you're excited and that God, he has really used this time to, to make meaningful, significant conversations with others in the past. And we'll do the same tonight. We can pray and hope that you'll do the same tonight. And I know you know this, but let me remind you you're going to go do that. Your primary task is not to be eloquent, but to be extraordinarily convincing. Though I do hope you speak well and sensibly and respectfully, carefully. But your primary task is to point others <coughs> to the great idol. Your primary task is to show others through your actions, through your words, your speech, your demeanor, that Jesus really is the eternal God. He's really the eternal God who has come to be with us. And he is worthy of our faith and our life. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we bow our heads and close our eyes and we speak to you as one who has spoken so powerfully to us. We recognize that we can call you by a variety of names. We can call you Jesus, the Lord who saves. We can call you Christ, anointed King. We can call you Emmanuel, God with us. But the Lamb of God who was slain 
take away the sins of the world. And we can also call you the great I am. This is such a mystery. Lord Jesus, would you seal this home in a deeper way into our hearts. I thank you for each one here tonight. You know each one so well. And I pray wherever they are, wherever each is before you, that you would move in our hearts so that we might see you more clearly. I pray that you would move in our ears so that we might listen to your words more carefully, understand them. And I pray that you would move in our beings so that we might trust you and obey you more deeply. Lord Jesus, you are good. We praise you. You are our God and Savior. And we pray these things in your name. Amen. Amen.